I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Lorna Crozier joins me again. She has just published a new collection of poetry after that. These poems, written in the aftermath of her partner Patrick Lane's death, illustrate and illuminate for the reader the depths of uh, grief following the loss of a loved one, somebody uh, she lived with for over 40 years. As she processes her loss, we see how she copes, what memories provide comfort and solace, and which ones are filled with mixed emotion. We see very intimate scenes in their life together, as well as soon after uh, Patrick's death. I'll ask Lorna about writing, finding her voice again, and about this fascinating journey we all take at death, whether it's ourselves or others. Perhaps uh, she's gleaned some insight or wisdom from her loss. Lorna Crozier is a distinguished poet and writer who has published 18 books of poetry as well as two memoirs, both of which she appeared on the program with, Small Beneath the Sky and Through the Garden. Her books uh, have been finalists for all the major awards in British Columbia and Canada. She is uh, a recipient of the uh, B.C. Lieutenant Governor's Award for Literary Excellence and the George Woodcock uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. She's Professor Emerita at the University of Victoria and an officer of the Order of Canada. Visit lornacrozier.ca for more information. This new book is published by McClelland and Stewart. We uh, taped this interview two and a half weeks ago. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Lorna Crozier. Professor Crozier, good morning. Good morning. It's good to hear from you again. Nice to talk to you. Um, We were just talking before we started about um, the weather, where you are and the weather where I am. What does the garden look like right now? Oh, it's just beautiful. It's got that lovely sheen that gardens get after a decent rainfall. Mm. And there are a lot of uh, Japanese maples in the garden of various kinds and various heights, and they're uh, beginning to change colors. So they've got green in them and kind of peach and turning to red. So the colors are just glimmering. Yeah, I bet it looks beautiful this time, this time especially, just just as we're hitting October. It falls one of my favorite seasons. Yeah. I think there's always a kind of um, sad sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. It, it. It's a nuanced time for me. Yeah, and, and you worked. You know, you, you worked in, in schools over the years. I've got. I guess it's usually the the beginning of the year for a lot of people, isn't it? Oh, for sure. I had a, a friend who was uh, reading for the first time the book of prose poems I wrote a while back called God of Shadows, and, you know, it's full of all kinds of gods. And she said, why don't you write a poem uh, called God of Back to School? <laughs> so, so I did, and, and the Taiyi actually just published it, so it was kind of neat. No, and I, every time fall rolls around, I want to go to a stationery store and <laughs> buy some new file folders and a blank notebook and some new nice pens. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the same, because uh, yeah. that's when I start up doing the podcast again. Oh, and, yeah. And then I realized, well, you know, I have all this stuff already from, you know, just this past spring. <laughs> uh, but I still buy the stuff, and then I, I, I keep it here, and I'm, I, I feel like I'm always ahead, you know. Yeah, I've, I've got a drawer full of it. I'm going to have to find <laughs> another empty drawer to put those new pristine notebooks in. And, of course, when you get a new blank notebook, you're afraid to use it. You don't want to mess it up. Mm. And any words you put in into it are, are going to mess it up. So when you um, uh, set out to, to, to put together a new collection like after that, mm-hmm. um, I read in the back of the book that some of these have appeared elsewhere. Is that correct? In other journals, you mean? Uh, yeah, other journals. journals? Yeah, yeah, not not in books, but right. in in, in uh, various literary magazines. Yes. And so, um, you obviously have to write new poems 
to include in a collection. Um, do, do you take one of those those new notebooks and, and use those, or do you go straight to a computer? Lately, I've been going straight to a computer. I used to always have hard-covered notebooks with blank pages that I used, and I needed a specific pen. Sometimes I do that, but more often than not, I just go directly to the computer. And um, you write near the back of the book that it was difficult because after Patrick's death to, to find your voice again. Um, is, is poetry the easiest way for you to express yourself or, or, or perhaps the most difficult? Um, I don't know if it's got anything to do with ease or difficulty. I think it just has to do with it's what I've been involved with for, you know, 50 years now. Um, it, it's the way I, I find um, a path to articulate what I'm not sure I'm feeling. You know, it's a way for me to translate numbness. Um, so I just automatically go there. I, I think I've been training myself in poetry rather than in turning, you know, the same images or events into fiction. I tend to, to stick in the path of poetry. There are a number of poems in after that that I found extremely instructive as to, to um, what I might do with whatever grief I have or, or in the future if, I, if I'm confronted by grief, because we always are. Yes. Um, sort of like a handbook, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. Do you um, put down what you're thinking or what you're trying to work out in the hope that someone else, the reader especially, might find some comfort or wisdom in, in, in what you've gone through? You know, that's the, um, that's the ideal, if a reader uh, can find that. And thank you for saying that, Joseph. But it's not really my intention um, I think it, it, it would be a little bit of, of, of hubris to think that, you know, I could, I could help someone or teach someone something. I just, I just need to, um, to get in an, in an aesthetic form something that is bothering me or delighting me or worrying me. I just need to find the language for it, and I, I do it for that reason, and then I hope after the poem's on the page, and I never know what it's going to say until it says it. I hope after I, I have it written down that there will be a reader out there that it will speak to. And maybe comfort, maybe disturb, uh, that there will be some response that the poem elicits in a reader. But I, I, I wouldn't uh, try to predict what that would be, you know, either before I write the poem or, or after I've finished it. I just send the poems out there, and, and they're, they're their own creatures when I'm done with them, and I, I, I have to step back and let them, you know, work the kind of work they're going to do. And the person who receives them, of course, um, makes them their own, and they speak to them in, in different ways that maybe I haven't even imagined. There are a number of moments in the book that are quite personal between you and Patrick. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I feel um, I'd be intruding if I brought up specifics. But, but I, I just have to say that it, it's such a gift to have some of the uh, insights that you, you bring in the books, uh, you know, to, to be brought into such intimate scenes. I, I guess um, someone else might think that they might not share that and, and, and wonder why you do. Um, do you, um, I, I guess you, you get something out of it, otherwise you wouldn't do it, right? Well, I, I guess what I get out of it is that um, I, I've always been the kind of writer that uses her life as the base of her writing. I'm not writing, you know, science fiction or fantasy 
or like I said, even even literary fiction. I'm I'm writing what is happening around me. I'm trying to give to the reader what it means to be in this particular spot of the world at this particular time, mm-hmm. going through these emotions, going through these rather you know profound and upsetting experiences. That's what I see myself doing as a writer. And I think poetry, more than other genres, um, acts, asks for the personal. Um, it, it asks that we, we use what we see around us, what we hear around us, what we touch, uh, because it's, it's based on, on sensory images. It's not based on vague abstractions or inventions, although inventions certainly take part in a poem. But I, I can't imagine any other way to write a lyric poem than, than to share what has happened. And, you know, it was interesting. I, I was um, uh, on a panel the other day, and, and one of the writers had written a book about grief, about the death of her son. Mm-hmm. And she said what delighted her and in some ways surprised her is the number of emails she got from people saying, your book really comforted me, and you said what I wanted to say. And yet it often wasn't about people who had lost a son. In one case, it was someone who had just lost her grandmother. Mm-hmm. You know, in another case, it was it was someone who had who had lost a good friend. So, I think if if the writing is is working, it has a very wide appeal. It has a big range, and it doesn't have to touch only people who have lost a partner of forty years, but any human being who is going through sorrow and in some cases debilitating grief because that's part of everyone's life that I know. Even when you're a child, you're starting to to sniff grief in the air. You worry about your parents not being here, about your brother, about your dog. You know that that, that we're born really with grief and it just becomes heavier as we get older because there's more of it happening. Yeah, that's the thing that I, I realize that, that um, I mean, we know that, that people, things, animals, uh, live and then die, yeah. and it doesn't get easier. That, that no. no, and no matter how many deaths you go through, like you kind of think, well, maybe I'm practicing grief. Right. You know, I, I, lost, I lost animal companions whom I love very deeply. I lost my dad, then I lost my mom, I've lost many friends, but that doesn't make the next loss any easier it it still is devastating when you care for that person or that animal who is going i i wish practice you know did help us because we all go through many many losses but it it doesn't Mm. you're still slammed right in the in the head and in the heart and in the gut with what that loss means to you is it presumptuous of me to to to, uh, say that there wasn't anything unsaid between you and Patrick? Um, actually, you know, the big thing that was unsaid between us, and there, there is a poem where I talk about my tongue being, you know, like a dead fish. What wasn't said was the fact that he was dying. Um, he was ill for three, maybe four years mm-hmm. with symptoms, terrible symptoms, debilitating symptoms, but his disease never got diagnosed beyond it being an autoimmune disorder. So it didn't get treated appropriately. And he and I both perhaps dumbly and naively thought we are finally going to meet the specialist who's going to say, this is what you've got, 
and here's the medication, and you're going to be okay. Um, but that didn't happen. And I wonder now, after having edited and read Patrick's posthumous poems, mm-hmm. whether whether he, he knew, he, he saw death's shadow, but he didn't want to bring it up, either for his own sake or probably for mine. Um, he didn't want to say to me, Lorna, I think I'm dying, because he wanted to protect me. And I was in some kind of denial, I think, perhaps he was too. So that's the big thing that didn't get said. We, we said, I love you often. Mm-hmm. We said, this is sad and sorrowful, and I wish that we weren't going through this. But he never said, I'm dying, and we have to face that. And I never said to him, I think you're dying, and we have to come to terms with it. Because I interviewed you for that, that Patrick's posthumous collection, right. um, yeah. and then have, uh, I'm now talking about this one. It, it seems like those two books, really, as well as your memoir, um, are in conversation with one another. Does it feel like the two of you are talking again? Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, in, in this book, I'm addressing, there's a you often, a you, a feeling in the garden, and that's, that's Patrick, so I'm addressing to him. I'm saying, I feel you in the garden, but I don't see you. You know, is it possible that you're occupying the body of a, of a beetle or living in a wasp's nest? Like, where are you now? So that was a, a real dialogue that, that went on between me and this invisible other, this presence that I, I wanted around and that I occasionally felt was still near me. And then there's the dialogue of those poems that he left uh, and these poems, and I think they're talking to each other. And I kind of see my my, uh, memoir, Through the Garden, which was about our lives together and his illness. Mm -hmm. It ended with him alive. And then his book of poems that I edited after he died, and then this book, I see them really as a a trilogy. Mm -hmm. And and I feel that that this collection after that is, is bringing that to... To its logical um, end. Well, what do you? It, it, one of the things I kept thinking about as I was reading the book is, is um, what I think happens when people die. Um, you know, and it's something that I've been thinking about my whole life, I guess, or ever, ever since I was a kid. And, and you know, the, the specter of death, you know, mm-hmm. shows up, at, you know, uh, in one's life. Um, do, do you um, do, do you have any conclusions as to what happens when when someone dies? <laughs> No, no, I surely don't. But I don't think that they entirely leave the earth or leave us. I think they continue to exist as a presence. And sometimes that's a good thing, and and sometimes it's not. Um, After Patrick first died, I could barely think of him because I was just so torn up. I was so wrecked. I thought... If I, you know, sense him every minute still with me, I will go mad. I will, I will be a crazy woman. I won't be able to get out of bed. I won't be able to make food. I won't be able to talk to anybody. So I had to kind of protect myself from that sense that he was still there. I didn't want to be haunted in those early days. Um, now that I'm a little more solid on my feet, um, I'm enjoying the hauntings, and I'm not seeing him show up in a in, in a physical sense. I'm not seeing a spirit with his face or 
hearing his voice, but there's there's more of a sense of of um, something in the air, and and I feel a warmth inside me that that lets me think that somehow he has touched me, and and let me know that the essence of him is still out there somewhere, maybe in a spider, because he loves spiders, yeah. you know, maybe in the turtles in the pond, maybe in all the stones that he touched and placed in the garden, but that that shimmer of him still exists, but not the physical part of him, and I don't know if even the, the mind, the thinking part of him is still out there, but I think something's, I think something's there, at least I would like to believe that. Yeah, I... I, I... I've gone away. I'm nominally a Catholic, and so we all think that you know you either go to heaven yeah. or you go to hell. Um, I um, I don't think I believe in those things anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that if if someone lives in one's memory, um, that's enough of an afterlife. I would think. I think so too. And and when you're an artist of some kind, and I think Patrick's written some wonderful books yeah. that are going to outlast, then then uh, he continues to live in in his life work as well. And I think that's tremendously lucky that he can continue with that, that people can revisit who this man, Patrick Lane, was in his 79 years on Earth by looking at the art that he, that he left behind for us to, to go into. So I hope that that's part of, of his continuance. And I'm, I, uh, you know, I grew up in the United Church, which is not quite as uh, ritualistic and, and, and mythic and strict as Catholicism, but I think now I would call myself a, a pagan eco-feminist <laughs> rather than a Christian, even though I was brought up Christian. And I can't believe there's a heaven and hell, but there might be an afterworld. And uh, I loved what Jim Harrison said in uh, one of his essays, in the American poet and fiction writer, that he imagines heaven as a farmhouse at the end of a road and it's full of all the animals he ever loved mm. and I, I that would be a heaven i wouldn't mind going to and then maybe there'd be the odd person that i love too who would drop by and go walking the dogs with me yeah. um the, the the process of grief especially when you have uh, pets in the house cats yeah um there's a, a poem in the book where it talks about um can't remember the line now. You sleep on the wrong, on the different side of the bed to confuse the cats. Yeah. Um, which I thought was, was a great image and a great line. Um, what do they add to the process of grief, or, or um, even the outside world itself, the the, the garden especially? Um, does it make it easier in a way? What it, what it does is it gets you out of bed in the morning, mm. you know, because there's another creature who's dependent upon you. And the cat is meowing for her breakfast um, and to be let outside. And, and that was, I think, an essential alarm clock for me when the alarm clock wouldn't have gotten me out of bed. You know, the, the, the cat did. I, I remember Jane Kenyon in one of her wonderful poems about depression saying it was the dog's wet nose that got her up in the morning. Otherwise, she would have stayed in bed in the darkness under the covers when she was going through her depressed spells. And with grief, I think it's the same thing. I think people who have children, when one of their partners dies, know that they have to keep on going for the child. They have to make the school lunch. 
They have to get the kid to school. They have to help the child, you know, move through this this sad, the sad hours of the day so they can't be self-indulgent in their grief. And not that I think it's wrong to be self-indulgent in grief. I yeah. think you do what you have to do. But um, the cat, for me, was, was a bit of a salvation. And also, like, Patrick left me with the half-feral crazy cat. The other cat, <laughs> yeah. the sweet cats, um, died. So I was left with this bit of a crazy creature who I'm afraid to pick up. Um, but she cuddles me in bed. She lies up against me, and I, I feel this warm you know, this creature warmth and connection with another living soul. And I, I think that's a, a comfort in times like this. Yeah, and I think we talked about this when, when, when the memoir came out. Um, it, it, it instinctively knew that you'd suffered a, a loss. I mean, it, yeah. it obviously Miss Patrick. Yeah, yeah. The cat became a lot more affectionate after Patrick died. Um, she hung around. She knew there was an absence that she was walking around. And I think she knew that, that I needed I needed something from her. And it, to, the, to the best of her little feral ability, um, she's been giving it to me. So it's almost like a truce between the two of you, I guess, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I've, I've learned, uh, I've really learned her body language. You know, I've translated her. So I know when, when not to put my hand on her because I could get scratched. And I know when she wants me to stroke her or scratch her under the chin. And other times she doesn't want anything to do with me. And, and that's just fine. I, I, I respect that. There's a poem in the book uh, with a line that reminded me of something that, that I'd, I'd heard of before but have, had, uh, I've always wondered about. Uh, you mentioned um, the sense of hearing. Um, yeah. I guess Patrick um, was hard of hearing. Yeah, and, he was and, hard of hearing and he was going blind. Yeah. He uh, was diagnosed with macular degeneration. So we had those two, two senses that were uh, diminishing. And then... Um, as he was dying, um, I guess the hearing returned, is that right? Well, no, it's just that, you know, maybe it's mythic, but, but I've heard several times that hearing is the last sense to go. Yeah. So even if someone is, is almost comatose, um, perhaps they can hear what you're saying to them. That's what they say, to talk to the, the person. Yeah, well. and, yeah. So, and that, that is what happened when Patrick was in the emergency room in the hospital, his last day on earth, and he was in at least a semi-coma state, um, the doctor said, you can talk to him. He can hear you. And so I did. And, you know, what do you say um, to your lover when he's lying there and uh, you know this is the last time you're going to see him and he can't speak and his eyes are closed and you just hope that you're saying what needs to be said and you're hoping that he can hear you, but what the hell, you've got to try anyway. Mm. That's kind of what that poem is about. Yeah. Um, another beautiful line in the book is, is um, start a list of things you didn't like about him. And then the, 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 this, this striking line break in, on the page and, and the words, try harder. Yeah. And I can't, it says so much about so many things, not just, you know, losing someone you love, but... Um, losing something that you you uh, like a great deal even you know yeah we were we were the best of friends you know we were pals 
um, we've really got each other, and uh, and we got each other more and more over our four decades together. So I lost not only a partner, but you know my buddy and my my writing companion. We edited each other's work. You know that that disappeared. Um, if one of us had a deadline, like you know, if we were commissioned to write something for the Globe and Mail, mm-hmm. we we pass it by the other, and and we were honest enough to say, no, this isn't as good as what you can do. You better start again, you know. So all of that, all of that left in 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 one great, you know, rush that left my world. So. Uh, and and you know Patrick and I both had flaws and we irritated each other many many times during the week. But when you look back at at how small those irritations were, you're almost ashamed for having let anything bother you. Like he left crumbs on the breadboard, you know, a big deal. Um, <laughs> so so what were his flaws? They they become less and less evident when someone is ill or when you miss them entirely. So does that change um, whatever uh, relationships or feelings you have with other people? I mean, are you more accepting of someone's flaws, um, family member or, or a, a friend or a colleague? <laughs> you would like to think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> but I'm not sure, Joseph. I probably accept my flaws more easily <laughs> rather than other people's. <laughs> Uh, that's a great way to put it. Um, the um, as an as an educator, um, w- which is how a lot of people know you as as well. Um, are you tired of people uh, say emailing you um, about uh, whether a poem is meant literally or? That, that <laughs> oh boy, yeah. I I often get this right from college students and high school high school students <laughs> say, you know, dear Miss Crozier. I'm having to present your poem to my class tomorrow, and can you please tell me what it means? <laughs> <laughs> and it's usually tomorrow, which, you know, just wants me to, to grab them and shake them. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I put on my website, you're welcome to get in touch with me, but don't ever ask me what a poem means. It's like asking what a cat means, what a tree means, what a foot means. And that kind of slowed down that question. So mm. I, I think the message might be getting might be getting out there. It's the last thing you want to ask about a poem as a reader and even as a writer, because the meaning of a poem is is not able to be articulated or it, it's said so simply like you know, uh, woman sad after husband dies. Well, if that's all it is, is that meaning? Why would anybody read it? A poem is is so many other things it's its music it's its image pattern it's its structure you know it's the the inner quiet workings it does on you even in between the lines and to state its meaning just is so reductive what um is it like for you to read poems out loud say at readings or appearances that you're making in promotion uh promoting the book um well i haven't done much yet i've got a a couple of big ones coming up the calgary literary festival next week in vancouver after that and you know i i I hope i can do it sometimes i feel very strong about reading them and and other times i just think my voice is going to break in this one but i i think i just have to accept that that if the poem you know elicits the emotion that was there when i wrote it then then that's okay um because, you know, poems are supposed to mm-hmm. affect us deeply 
in, in that inner place where we live in our hearts and in our souls. So I'm just going to let it happen. Does it take new meaning, uh, a, a poem, when, when you read it out loud even? Yeah, what happens is um, I think it takes new meaning because you, you sense the poem going into someone else's um, being. You know, you, 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 there's a quality of listening that is quite remarkable when you're reading out loud to a room full of people. Um, they 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 tend to sigh in the right place. Mm. You know, they they laugh where where the poem wants them to laugh. They're extra quiet when when you would like them to be. When you want some inner working to be going on. So, the poem I think takes on more intent and uh, more beauty when when there's someone to receive it. Um, you allude to this in, in the back of the book in the acknowledgments um, as to um, the uh, world of, of uh, published poetry. Um, you've been at it for a long time. Um, yeah. Is it harder now getting read than, say, years ago, say 50 years ago even? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I think my book sales, my poetry book sales, have dropped rather than increased. And I don't know if that's just me. I don't think so. I think other poets are saying this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think there were more people who would turn up for poetry readings maybe, you know, 20 years ago than, than there are now. Maybe our lives are just so bombarded by other options, by other things to do, and, and we're more loath to leave home because we can connect with so many things from our, our bedrooms and our offices. I don't know what it is, but I do get that sense that there's just more, there's more um, sensory overload out there. Mm-hmm. And maybe people, I don't think people are reading books, period, as much yeah. as they used to. And certainly when I talk to my friends, most are saying that, you know, I used to read a book a day and I'm not reading a book a day anymore. I'm reading maybe a book a week. So that must be having a, an effect on the average writer's sales and income. The superstars will always sell because they're kind of a happening and people like to have the book and talk about the book. Um, but I think the other sort of more um, um, ordinary writer is not going to get that. Well, I hope a lot of people pick this up because there's a lot of wisdom in here. Um, there's a lot of beauty in the images that you, you've cast on the page that um, I think... Um, someone will find something that they'll enjoy, something that they'll be moved by, something that they'll uh, remember. I mean, there are lines in this book that I've, I'm remembering um, long after I've read the book. It's such a pleasure to, to, to speak to you again, Lorna. All the best, and, and thanks for your time today. Yeah, you too, and, and thank you very much just for, for recommending that, that the book be read. I'm very pleased that it, it had an effect on you. The website for more is at lornacrozier.ca. The book is called After That. It's published by McClelland and Stewart. It's uh, author Lorna Crozier. Join me on the line from Saanich in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.